So rather than just have one of us talk and then the other one talk, we're going to try to do this in a little bit of a sort of back and forth and conversational manner. Uh, we've chatted a little bit before about how we approach things, and we see things pretty eye to eye. So um, hopefully we'll not be giving you contradictory messages today. I doubt we will. Until we do. Um, until we do. Um, so we we're going to start off with things, uh, how to think about before you even get to the exam. So how do you do well on an exam partly depends on what you're doing in class leading up to it. And so one recommendation I have is to sort of be an active learner. And that means that you shouldn't let a week go by where you are really confused about what's going on in the classroom. If there is a week where you don't follow what's going on, you need to go back, take a look at your notes, you should take advantage of office hours, uh, and you should sort of be figuring out how what you're learning fits in with everything else. So when the professor actually finishes a unit on something, you should be able to say, okay, I understand how this piece fits into the sort of larger perspective uh, of what I am learning. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, one of the ways, sort of my macro, macro, macro thing um, is in some ways doing well in exams involves preparing yourself to do the thing you're going to do. And the thing you're going to do is you're going to be presented with an unfamiliar fact pattern that it may not be immediately obvious what the topic of the question is. And one of the skills you need to develop is figuring out how to figure that out. And passively consuming each day's reading as a discrete chunk does not help you do that. Um, I, I, I'm sure different people vary. I mean, one of the things I constantly do in my classes that tries to model that is I constantly ask people about how this relates to something we did last week or something we did the month before. And a lot of people really struggle with that, particularly at first, but that is an absolutely vital skill because that's what you do on an exam. You have to figure out how this new information relates to something you did two weeks ago. And so part of that is being an active learner of that material. So I completely agree with that. So, so then there's sort of how to think about outlines. And I would say that outlines are sort of a means, they're not an end, right? So the, at the end of the day, as you're walking into an exam, it shouldn't be, look at the pretty fonts I have, and I tied it in a bow, and if I were going to hand it to somebody, it would be publishable, right? What you need to have with an outline is something that you have read and worked through so many times that you don't need to look at it by the time you get to the exam. Because I think one thing that happens is people think, well, I've got an outline, and then I'm just going to be able to use it and refer to it when I get to the test. But if you are reading a fact pattern and you don't know your outline cold, you'll never spot the issues. You can't spot issues you don't know exist and you don't know the issues exist unless you actually know your outline. So it's not the kind of thing where you should think at you know, 8.59 before you take an exam at 9 a.m., now I need to finish my outline. You should have your outline finished relatively early so that you can work through it over and over and over again so you're not actually hoping to look at it during the exam. Completely agree. Um, one way I'll, I'll think about this, an outline for me is not simply summarizing all the information that you learned in class. It's actually taking it apart, putting it back together. Um, it shouldn't necessarily follow the order you learn, thing in learn things in class. Um, my goal was always, the goal, when I, I thought about this when I was taking exams is, the goal is not to have the longest outline possible. The goal is to have the absolute shortest outline possible. The goal is to summarize everything important about this class in 12 pages. Um, can I cut this? Can I consolidate these? Because what that allow, allow you to do is you'll realize that at some point, oh, as it turns out, this test we studied over here and this test we studied over here are actually the same test. 
I don't need to list them twice in my outline. Now, that's, of course, instrumental. The real goal is to realize that they're actually the same task. And once you realize they're actually the same task, it will help you apply them on the exam. So for me, I completely agree. I mean, you could literally, as you're walking to the exam, take your outline and throw it in the garbage. And if you've done your outlining correctly, you've lost nothing from the benefit because it's not for the exam. It's for sort of organizing and structuring your thinking before the exam. And ultimately, the only person who can really teach you the material is you. So one of the ways I think of the outline is it's your attempt to teach the material to yourself in a way that makes sense to you that's going to allow you to access and retrieve the information on an exam. I completely, yeah. So, so we'll probably, so one thing we probably disagree about a little bit is the sort of goal of getting a smaller outline. I was never sort of able to get an outline down to 12 pages. I think my outlines tended to read <laughs> like 40 to 50 pages. But I do think that uh, if your outline is longer, you know, and I, I know what you're, well, I think I know what you're going to say in response to this, but um, you want to have something uh, that's sort of like a one-page checklist. You want to have the how do I approach and tackle problems, right? So the people who are suffering through evidence with me know the first thing they're going to do is think, figure out what is this being offered to prove as a relevance question, right? And it may be, as people suffering through evidence with me right now know, that I'm not teaching it in the exact order that I want you to tackle it on the exam. Uh, but what you want to do is have something that's really close to the one page or there are some con law professors I know or property professors who only let you bring in one page. And what you want to be doing is really synthesizing the material in a way where you've got the, oh gosh, is there anything I'm missing here during sort of the stress of the exam? Yeah. So one of the things, one of the things we were asked to talk about was uh, how getting better at not spotting issues. And I think the single biggest way to not spot, to, to get better at spotting issues is to think through the questions you should ask and the order you should ask them. Right? The way people miss issues is that they don't consider, the way you miss an issue is first and foremost by not even considering that X might even be an issue. And the way that you don't consider whether X might even be an issue is that you haven't put it in your list of mental, I mean, I, I'm a huge believer in checklists. I will say till the cows come home, if you told me I only get one page going into any, any task at all, I want a one page flowchart. That is the one thing I would pick. Ask this, then ask this, then ask this, then ask this, then ask this. Um, that's how you avoid missing issues. The way you avoid missing issues is spending a lot of time thinking about the things you need to think about and the order you need to think about them so you don't get sort of off over here and not realize there's this gigantic thing over there. So I'm a huge fan of that. I think it's part of preparing for the task you're going to have to do. And the task you're going to have to do is to, is to tackle an unfamiliar fact pattern with tremendous time pressure and stress. And when people are under time pressure and stressed, they do dumb things. You will do dumb things. People do dumb things when they're under time pressure and stress. And you, you, you can't eliminate that, but what you need to do is plan for that to happen and then plan for what you're going to do when that happens. So another thing I would do getting much closer to the exam is to do practice exams. And the thing that I recommend with practice exams is do them with somebody that you trust and then actually swap answers. So I once had a student come to my uh, office hours after she got her exam back, this was many years ago, and said, you know, I don't understand, I spotted all the issues. And I said, well, you spotted some issues, you didn't know what to do with any of the issues you spotted, you didn't discuss them in any way. 
And she wasn't able to sort of diagnose that on her own because if you do a practice exam and you just write down the issues you see, you're not recognizing, oh wait, I don't actually know how to explain or apply that test or, or really give it depth and breadth. And so one thing to do is to in fact share with someone else you trust and then you each read each other's answer quite critically. Did this person really explain and connect all the dots? But I can't stress enough how important it is to do practice exams, to look at professors sample answers. If you look at an old exam and you think, I've been in a different class, the professor just taught different material. I had a friend in law school who did really poorly in contracts. I said, didn't you look at the practice exam? And she said, yeah, I thought the professor just covered different material this year. Like, if you have that reaction, you're in trouble, right? And so going over uh, practice exams and making sure you're really comfortable with the kinds of questions professors tend to ask, what they're going to do, is really important leading up to the exam. I completely agree. Um, also, if you're a person who experiences time problems, I mean, so there's really two, there's two components, I think, to doing well in law school exams. There's being good on the substance, and then there's being good at the artificial task of taking an exam. Um, and some people have a lot of aptitude for one and less aptitude for the other, and vice versa. Uh, and if you're a person, particularly if you're a person who doesn't find that you have a lot of aptitude for the actual taking part, the actual time pressure, the actual time management, the way to get over that is to do it a lot is to force yourself to do it a lot and to do it under actual time. And it's sort of like LSAT prep classes, which I'm sure a bunch of you took. If you're the kind of person who has trouble completing the LSAT within the assigned time, the way to solve that is to take a bunch of LSATs where you have to complete the LSAT in the assigned time. Um, and I think the same thing is true about exams. Now, there's a trade-off, I know, because sitting down to take a four-hour exam burns four hours of study time. And that's a lot of time. And I totally understand that when you get close to it. But, but if you are a person, especially if you are a person who does feel like you struggle with the mechanics of taking the exam, that is time well spent. The experience of like, oh gosh, well I spent 50% of the time in this question dealing with the first 10%. I probably shouldn't do that. Like how can I diagnose how that happened and how I don't do that on the real exam? Because I mean, one of my biggest things when we get to evaluation is I don't know the things that you know that aren't on your exam. I don't know. If something's not in your exam, I don't know that you know it. And I don't know if you don't know it because you ran out of time. I don't know if you don't know it because you spent way too much time on question one. Or I don't know if you know it because you didn't see it. Because the bottom line is the only thing we get is the document. And anything that's not in the document, I don't know that you know. And so if you're having difficulty with the mechanics of the exam is preventing you from showing what you know in the document, that's something you need to fix. And the best way to fix it is just by doing it and doing it a lot. Um, so I'm ready to move over to mm -hmm. directly approaching the yep. sort of question. So I'll start with this. I think the most important thing you can do to do well on an exam is to read the question. Read it carefully. Figure out exactly what the professor is asking. Right, so there was an, uh, a question on my fall uh, crim class um, exam, and the person was sort of commenting on the model penal code revisions and said, you know, the professor, the imaginary professor, and the professor said, I think you're making a conceptual error, and it spelled out the conceptual error. I wanted people to then address, was there a conceptual error here? Not, is this a good law, is it a bad law? But if this was the complaint that it was a conceptual error, that's what you have to deal with. I think that there are times, I'll actually tell you when I took the bar, 
I got very excited that there was a willful blindness question on, I'm a crim person, right? So I'm a geek, I'm like, yay, willful blindness. You know, In Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is a model penal code jurisdiction. It was a really straightforward answer under a model penal code jurisdiction over whether or not this counted as knowledge or not. But I didn't want to talk about that. I wanted to talk about all the different possible tests and how to think about them. I'm lucky I didn't fail the bar, right? Because I was so giddy to talk about what I wanted to. Um, you've got to answer the question. You've got to really pay attention to what the professor's asking, and you've got to really answer that question, not the question you wish the professor was asking or that you think the professor's asking because you're so stressed out that you're not paying a lot of attention to it. Completely agree. Um, I had, there are two law school exams I look back and on think that I completely screwed up, and one of them I egregiously violated this principle. Um, I just egregiously violated the answer the actual question you were asked principle. So I think you need to do that. So, and that for me has two components. Reading the question really carefully, you have to answer the actual question that you're being asked. So one mistake people can make is that they don't actually, the conceptual error example, sometimes people don't actually answer the question they were asked. And you really should only answer the question that you're asked. Um, I've given the same CIVPRA midterm every year for like the last eight years. And the question very clearly says, explain to me whether there's subject matter jurisdiction in this case. And every year, I get multiple midterms that talk about venue, which is not subject matter jurisdiction, or personal jurisdiction, which is not subject matter jurisdiction, or, or some other issues, right? Like, and it, it, it's not, I, what I tell people, at least the way I grade, I'm not scoring you down, but what I am telling you is that every single word you write about a topic that I didn't ask is a word that is getting you no credit whatsoever. Zero, you could have the, I mean, it's actually the case that there's sort of an interesting personal jurisdiction question buried within that question. It, it's not that it's uninteresting, it is, however, not the question you were asked. Um, and so I think you need to be really, really careful about that. But the inverse, I think I also agree, is that you've got to make sure that you're answering the question that was asked, not a related but distinct question from the question that you're asked. Absolutely. So I also think that there's, there's always the sort of meta questions about how much to game the professor or game the exam. Um, and I think that there's both the sort of the professor and the exam part. So let me start with the exam part. I think you should look at practice exams with a sense of what does this professor typically cover? If every time the professor gives a test, there's something on felony murder, there's probably gonna be something on felony murder. In CivPro, if your professor, like mine, spent 80% of the time on personal jurisdiction, there's going to be a question on personal jurisdiction. Wouldn't it be crazy in CivPro if you never had a question on Erie? Probably, right? So you have to, maybe you didn't give a question on Erie. Um, you didn't. <laughs> depends on, so it totally depends on your professor and what your professor has focused on. And so you wanna be paying a little bit of attention to that. What was the professor either excited about? What was the course emphasis on? What did there seem to be a lot of back and forth on? You know, we don't tend to test you about the sort of you know, footnote that we never mentioned. We tend to spend most of our emphasis on exams on the things that were actually covered during class. Um, that being said, I will tell you, one thing that shows that you don't know what's going on more than anything else is when you randomly just vomit a bunch of law somewhere because you haven't figured out where the eerie question is and you're sure it should be somewhere. So you decide like, I haven't seen an eerie question. Why don't I put three paragraphs here just to show I learned something about eerie? That, that shows that you didn't learn anything about eerie if you sort of put that in, in that 
particular spot. But I do think that you at least want to game things in terms of the sense of you should expect a test to test what you've learned, and that will be thinking about what has been going on in class and what the professor has emphasized. Yeah, we're, we're usually not very subtle. Like we're really not. Um, I actually think, I also think paying just very careful attention to what you talk about in class. Things that people talk about again and again and again in class are likely to be on the exam. Things that people gloss over are not likely to be on the exam. So I think that's, I mean, I, I guess I'd start with sort of, sort of the usefulness of the signal. If you can get seven practice exams from a person, you should have a very good idea of what the exam is on because you will start to see that we are very predictable. Failing that, you know, one or two practice exams. Failing that, what are the things you talked about in class over and over and over and over again? That's another good signal. Um, and then just what did you spend the most time on? I mean, what if, I guess one way to think about it is, in particular, places where the class gave way more emphasis to something than the book, that's, in, that's something there's a very good prospect that's going to be tested on. Um, so I think, I think that all makes sense, trying to figure that out as much as possible. And that fits for me under the sort of global header of try to anticipate the task you're going to be asked to do, because the more time you spend anticipating the task you're going to ask to do, the better you'll do accomplishing the task you were asked to do. Do you want to talk about the, the, the overthinking this now? Well, I was going to do the, the, the side of don't overthink the professor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, right. So I don't know. I'm a little allergic to the idea of like really gaming professors or that professors all want different things as though we don't all want good legal arguments. I mean, I do think that there's probably a little variation in terms of um, is it, so I give tests that I think are both breadth and depth tests. Right, which is both you get points for cover hitting a lot of issues and you get points for hitting issues well. And there may not be time to do both of those things, but you're going to get points no either way. Um, and I think that professors will tell you a little bit about those sorts of things. But I think sort of trying to get in the head of like, where is this professor thinking, you know, she seems to hate hearsay, so I should come out that everything isn't hearsay. Or I think you can sort of overthink that and be distracted from thinking like, I'm doing this to practice being a lawyer, right? This is, we put you in positions where you get to be lawyers and we want to see good legal arguments. And there is actually, I think, pretty good consensus among the faculty about what looks like a good legal argument and what looks like a bad legal argument. And I think trying to gauge at the margins is probably overthinking it and not time well spent. The only caveat I would give is if someone specifically tells you what they want or don't want, do that. <laughs> or don't do that, as the case may be. Um, if there are word limits, follow them. If there are length limits, follow them. If they tell you, I want you to never say anything without answering what, why do you think what you just said, do that. I mean, so, right, I, I definitely agree with don't try to, re uh, I, I completely agree with don't overthink it, don't try to psychoanalyze anyone. But it does not, it's not psychoanalyzing someone to say, if they say, I want you to do X, to then do X. That's not psychoanalyzing someone, that's listening. And I would encourage you to do that. <laughs> So, okay, you want to go on to the exam itself? Sure, so the exam itself. Um, so I think that being, uh, working through sort of a, a legal argument, being very methodical about it. I'm a, you know, I know some of you are CRAC or CREAC, I guess, other legal writing professors use, or IRAC, but basically, right, this statute is unconstitutional, period, right? Then, you know, here are the rules that apply. Then applying those rules, right, and then coming to a conclusion is sort of what we're looking for. Uh, well, not sort of, it is what we're looking for. Uh, rule statements, 
uh, don't typically, for most professors, help you very much. You should put rule statements down so we know you know the law, so you know the law you're applying, but we don't want the same sort of in a legal writing, you know how you'd give three paragraphs on the law. We know what the law is. Just show us you know what the law is quickly and then spend most of your time on the analysis, right? What we want to see is you thinking through uh, and working through, you know, the sort of gray areas. So I have a little hype. Can I give my little example? So this is really dumb, but it'll work. Okay. So in primary color land, you've learned the following three cases. If a gray car gets into an accident with a blue car, blue car wins. If gray car gets into an accident with a green car, green car loses. And if gray car gets into an accident with a pink car, if it's 51% or more red, then in fact it wins. But if it's less than 50% uh, red, then it loses. So then you get a test, and in that test, gray car, your client, gets into an accident with a turquoise car. So here, I've written how you should analyze this. In this case, our client, gray car, will be victorious over the defendant's turquoise car. Turquoise is a color halfway between blue and green. The defendant will argue that under the pink percentage rule, if his car is 51% blue, he should win. We will argue, in contrast, that the rationale behind the green car case applies here as well. Namely, to quote Justice Trump's opinion, yellow is a color for losers. <laughs> because turquoise is part green and green is made of yellow, the policy behind green cars losing should apply to turquoise cars as well. Right? So you have three precedents, you get a case that doesn't fall directly on point in any of those precedents. You know, one, you have this funky percentage rule that you learned from something about red. Does that apply here? Are they gonna try and pull that in here? Or how do I resolve this in terms of blue versus green? Well, what was the policy underlying those decisions? And what about that policy should lead to one side uh, winning over the other side, right? So all of it comes not from just saying blue wins, green loses, pink, it depends on the percentage. It all comes from how do you then know how to apply it in any given particular case. And all of your points come from explicating that, from giving us the argument, from giving us the counter argument, from telling us why we think, why you think that one side has a stronger argument than the other. All right, so. How so do you, a, what grade do you give me on my lot. turquoise card? Um, okay, so <laughs> there, no, there's a lot of things that I want to talk So I think one of the most common misconceptions, and I think it's actually, it's totally understandable on your part because it's something that we kind of do. Uh, you'll frequently get an exam that tells you to write a memo. And you think, I've learned how to write a memo. I took a class. It was called Ellard. No, 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 no. That's not the memo I want. Um, that memo is way too long. That memo is way too padded. That memo has all kinds of things that are going to earn you no credit whatsoever. Um, that memo has a statement of the question presented. I know what the question presented is. I wrote the question presented. Um, so I don't need you to tell me what the question presented is. Um, that memo has a summary of, I don't need a summary of your conclusion. Your essay is going to be four pages long. It does not require a summary of your explanation. Um, that memo has a statement of the facts. Once again, I wrote the facts. I don't need you to summarize the facts of the question for me. Um, and so I think the single biggest thing that people spend an enormous amount of time on is sort of throat clearing in exams. And sometimes it's our fault because we told you to write a memo without telling you I don't mean a memo like that. Um, I also similarly think people spend a lot of time um, just stating a bunch of rules, which I think is also pretty much worthless on an exam. Um, I guess one way to think about it for me is I would never state 
Okay, this is overly broad. But I would have a strong presumption against stating rules that you do not immediately apply to the fact situation at hand. Like rule, rule application conclusion rule, or it can even be application rule conclusion, right? Because the car is green, it loses under the principle that green cars always lose to gray cars, right? It actually, that, that, that formulation actually starts with the facts, explains the conclusion, and then identifies the rule as the basis for the conclusion. And sometimes it's really that simple. Sometimes the answer is because the amount in controversy alleged is seventy is twelve thousand dollars, which is less than seventy five thousand dollars. The amount in controversy requirement is not satisfied, so you can't have diversity jurisdiction, right? It's that straightforward. It's that easy. It's actually just deductive logic, at that point. Um, but I think the key here is that I wouldn't just state a bunch of rules and then get around to applying them to the facts. The other thing I'd say about that is when you state a bunch of rules before applying them to the facts, is where you forget about applying the rules to the facts. If you have basically a rule that you will never state rules without immediately applying them to the facts, it's far less likely that you'll forget to apply them. Um, this results in my preferred formulation of exams is that the first part of the exams tend to have very, very, very short paragraphs. It goes like rule, fact, application, conclusion, paragraph break, rule, application, paragraph, conclusion, paragraph break, so that when you then get to the more difficult question of how to treat the turquoise car, I think that's the other thing, and we'll go into sort of identifying issues that are difficult versus issues that are simple. One of the things that's also really helpful about stating the rule and immediately trying to apply it is it will help you do a very important thing to separate on exams. There are questions that are easy, and there are, question there are questions that are easy and obvious, and there is a right answer. And there are parts of the question that are not easy and not obvious, and there is not a right answer. And another place that people get into trouble is they burn way too much time on the first, and they spend way too little time on the second. That is to say, someone you do not need a dense paragraph to explain to me why a complaint that only alleges $12,000 in damages does not support diversity jurisdiction. There is a clear rule, there is a clear fact, and it is 100% clear how that rule applies to the facts of that case. That should be two sentences at absolute most. On the other hand, you have this question about the turquoise car. And the first thing you do is, can I plug a rule in here? Right? And the answer is, well, I can't because I don't have a rule about a turquoise car. I have rules about pink cars, and I have rules about green cars and blue cars, but I don't have a turquoise. But, but the, way, the way you discover that in some ways is that you try to apply the formal rules you have, and you go, there isn't a rule about a turquoise car. OK, so now I've tentatively identified a, hard, a harder issue, the harder part of the question. There is not a clearly right answer to this. So now I have to figure out, how do I go about it? Well. I guess I have rules about green cars and I have rules about uh, blue cars. And that this is a great, actually a great example because now you can make another mistake. You can just assert that the outcome is x. Having identified the difficult issue, the next mistake that's very frequently made is the person simply identifies the issue and just says, therefore, the outcome is x. They're like, what do you mean, therefore, the outcome is x? <laughs> There's no case that says that about turquoise cars. You have to explain something about the reasoning for that. Because now you've identified what I think are the more difficult questions, the more challenging questions. And those are the questions where you have to start talking about, well, um, what have the courts said about the reasons for this rule? What have we said in class about the reasons for this rule? Or this case you know, is somewhere between a case where there were five factors and a case where there were no factors. And those cases came out opposite. And this case appears to have three of the factors, but not two of the other factors. 
What you should not do then is say that three is more than two. That's also not something you should say. What you should try to say is the case that had the five factors, it seemed to me from our discussion when I saw an opinion that really factors two and four were the ones that seemed really important, as demonstrated by the fact that the court really emphasized factors two and four. And lo and behold, factors two and four are the two on the side of the three-two split. But then imagine it's even harder, because imagine that those two factors are the two really important ones, and they're on opposite sides of the split. Now you have identified a genuinely difficult question, a really difficult question. And then you, you know, that's where the sort of raw, like, what's the policy? What's going to be simple? So then you should start, what rule would be easier to administer? Because that's something courts sometimes care about. What rule is going to be clear? What rule is going to give more notice to people? Because those are things courts tend to care about sometimes. But then you've identified, but you should rejoice when you've identified this. Because if you have gotten far enough into the question that you've identified, this is really friggin' hard. A, you should write that down. That's another horrible mistake people make all the time. Like, I, I sometimes talk to people after their exams and like, I realized it was really hard. It's like, why didn't you say that? Because the, what I, what's going to get you credit, or one thing that's going to get you credit with me, is the fact that you've thought through this question enough to really realize that this is actually really hard, and you can explain why it's really hard, which you cannot do unless you understand this material really well, and unless you've been thinking about it. And once you do all that, I don't even really honestly care what answer you pick. Because you have shown me that you're able to analyze this question in a really thoughtful and systematic way. And I don't know, at the end of the day, pick X because you think it makes more sense. But I think that's, that's what you want to sort of be doing. So I think this example is actually really helpful. Is Thank my you. Answer. Um, I want to follow up on a couple things mm -hmm. um, that you said. So one is, in terms of the things students do with memos that is really like a complete waste of time, sometimes they write to hiring partner from exam number one, two, three, four. Like they do that. Like if you didn't do that, congratulations. I've seen that um, every more time. Than, and if you did, more than once. If oh. you were not the only one. <laughs> I've, in my experience, also had people then forget to, it was anonymous. That was the problem. Um, <laughs> uh, so th then the question is sort of, why do we give you, why do we tell you to write a memo if we don't really want you to write a memo? And I think one of the reasons I give people a side or I tell them the perspective is actually supposed to be to help them with the mindset to see the gray areas. That you're representing a side, you've got an agenda. Okay, I want to prosecute this person. I want to put him in jail. What are the elements I have to meet? What's the defense going to say? That the more you sort of play lawyer in the moment and sort of seize the role, the more likely it is that you're actually going to see the problems that you could potentially have. Uh, so that's part of the reason, at least, that I do it, is actually not to have you accidentally put in more information than you need, but that I think that that role actually helps you ha bring a, per a particular perspective to bear. So we've already covered this, but I will tell you, um, because my sister-in-law actually had this helpful phrase. My sister-in-law, who went to law school and then for always forgot to write down the easy things, right? The $12,000 is less than $75,000. $75, I know that. It takes a pro. I think it was, was it always 75? Was no, it, it once 50? 50. It okay, 50. I went back in the old days, it was 50. Uh, so uh, at the time, um, she would forget to write down the easy things. And if you don't write down the easy things, you don't get points for the easy things, right? Because we really can't tell the difference between you thought it was obvious and you didn't see it, right? Like, we, we can't tell the difference between those exams. So she would write down cows don't fly on the top of her outline. And it was really just to remind her to state the obvious, <laughs> that if you've got five elements to a crime and three of them are really easy and two of them are really hard, 
knock up the, you know, get the points, rack up those points for uh, getting the, the obvious things before moving on to the harder ones. Don't say, well, obviously, if you took money from a cash register, we, there would have been the taking the property of another. I don't have to cover that. I know that the real hard question was specific intent. You get points for actually going over the things that were clear on the exam and then spending most of your time on the hard things. And I, I think that the sort of when a rule, when you can't just easily cite the rule is a really sort of helpful way of thinking about when are you going to hit those gray areas. But I think it's so important when you hit those to just say like, this is, you know, this is the fun part, right? This is the, you know, the fight club moment of law school. Uh, you know, you don't run away from it. You don't conclude because it's hard. You show us how hard it is. You say, you know, you imagine your professor and you say, I'm going to show you, you tried to put something really hard. I'm going to show you how hard it is and I'm going to analyze this and you're going to be so proud of everything I learned by the end of it, right? You should have that kind of attitude when you're taking the exam. Like, I'm going to analyze the bejesus out of this, right? That should be your approach to getting to those hard gray areas because it's true we don't actually care what conclusion you reach we care about how you reach what? it on the issue that's actually hard on the issue that's hard <laughs> on the easy issues we will be very unhappy <laughs> if so, you think twelve thousand dollars is sufficient then for personal you're wrong. jurisdiction then you're just then wrong you're in trouble. <laughs> um, so that relates a little bit of, of the sort of why you're saying interrogating why you're saying it the, the one advice I give to a lot of people I think every time I talk about exams if you ask me what the single biggest distinguishing characteristic of the highest scoring exams is, is that they make far more liberal use of the actual or the implied word because. The single biggest thing that separates the highest scoring exams from all of the rest of them is that the highest scoring exams never or almost never assert anything without immediately saying why they think that. And one question that comes up, I know for me a lot, is the questions about citing, like whether, whether you should cite cases or how or whether you should use authority on exams. I think one of the strongest ways you can do that is to answer the question because, sorry, why with because. So you're going to just assert something, right? There's a, this is dangerous, I'm gonna to try to reference something from criminal law. Um, <laughs> but there's a strong presumption against strict liability crimes. Why? <laughs> because the Supreme Court has said that. In Morissette. In Morissette, right? Great. <laughs> right? Well, so that's a, that's a use of it, right? There, we should not lightly assume. So the question is, what are the elements of this statute I've been pre presented with? What do I have to prove? Well, on its face, it doesn't say anything about mens rea. But there is a strong presumption against strict liability crimes. Now imagine that this hypothetical interlocutor would ask you, what is the basis for the assertion that you just made? And then you would say, Morissette is the basis for the assertion that I just made. Or Rule 12 is the basis for the assertion that I just made. So that's one, I think, really successful use of authority. And one of the things that'll help you do is, is more similarly applying those difficult issues when you say, well, turquoise uh, wins because turquoise is really more blue than green. And then someone says, and what's the assertion, what's your authority for the proposition that turquoise is really blue, not really green? And I say, I mean, it just is. That's not a good answer. <laughs> I, didn't write it, I didn't write a complicated hypothetical that, that could be resolved by you just asserting that you think turquoise is more blue than green, right? That's not what the question is designed to do. Um, and so then you have to think, well, gosh, now I have to think, well, is it, and that, that's what the, also, there's a big hint in this fact pattern. The big hint is the fact pattern about the pink car. Why is there a question, why is there something in this fact pattern about a pink car? 
it's in there precisely to provide you with a precedent for how to deal with colors that are between different right and shades of a color. So you should assume you're going to use it. So, what else? Um, so sometimes you are going to decide something. So, so one question is, you take something to be obvious, but you're worried that you take it to be obvious. Or you struggle through something and reach a conclusion. Uh, and then the question is what to do with the rest of this. So as anybody who's had me in CRIM knows, just make sure you hit other things just in case you're wrong. I stopped my torts exam, one of the big issue spotters on there is no duty here. Duty, breach, causation, damages, no duty, right? How many points did I leave on the table? A ton. On the score of 1 to 10, I got 2.5 on that question. I know I've got all my blue books in my office. Um, so they gave them back to you. We'll talk about that too. Uh, but uh, really important to make sure, you, I mean, sometimes it's a judgment call, right? So, you know, if you find that this statute doesn't apply, then you shouldn't go through all the limit. You know, if you find the defendant, I keep using my actual fall crim, but if you find the defendant isn't guilty of robbery, there's no reason to go through whether or not he's guilty of felony murder and applying the felony murder limitations because you didn't find him guilty of robbery. But maybe you're a little nervous. What if I'm wrong about this specific question? Well, in the event that I'm wrong about this, then you go on and continue with that question. One big hint for that is how much time you've been allocated for the question. So if it's a five minute question, you're probably not wrong. If it's a 45 minute question or you've been told it's a lot of points and you've been able to resolve it really quickly, be worried, right? Or at least cover your basis and go over various things. Professors sometimes aren't fallible. They can put something in an exam and not realize that you could reach a particularly reasonable conclusion. But you should, of course, be you know, telling us, well, if in fact it isn't, if in fact there is a duty here, then what do we do from, from there on? Uh, because you've been given the time that says the professor thinks you should have more time to talk about other things. Yeah, I think that's a huge, a huge indicator one way or the other, actually. Um, I have, so I have two examples. So my crim law exam, I made the horrible mistake. I had these two friends that I studied a lot with, and I made the horrible mistake, I know, but a lot of you made this mistake too. You took your exam, and then you went to talk to your friends about the exam you just took, which is a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake. Uh, and I still, I actually vividly remember being at Buffalo Wild Wings with my friend Dave, who if he watches this. Uh, and I remember we were talking about the crim exam, and I said, what did you think about issue X? He's like, there was no issue about issue X. I was like, what did you think question two was about? He was like, I don't know, I just thought it was about duress. I was like, it was really obvious that there was no duress. I mean, like, I mean, yes, I agree, it was sort of about duress, but like, that was a five minute duress. Like, what'd you do? Oh, that was it. I told him that I'd run out of time on the exam. He's like, oh, I finished half an hour early. I was like, why'd you finish half an hour? He's like, well, because question two, I did it in like 10 minutes. I was like, that was a 60 minute question. You probably missed something. You probably missed, and then I said, well, what did you say about X? He's like, there was no issue about X in that question. He's like, well, we should probably stop talking now because this isn't going to go anywhere. Um, <laughs> But, but, the, but the inverse of that is also true. The inverse of it also is true. If you get a question that's, that you've been told you should only spend 10 minutes on it, and you think, hey, there's a straightforward answer. Um, there was an issue in my CivPro exam in the fall. Um, there was a claim preclusion issue. And the parties weren't in mutuality, right? And for, one of the claim, for claim preclusion, it's an absolute requirement that the parties be in mutuality. They weren't. That was the answer. It was a straightforward, can't have claim preclusion. There's no mutuality between the parties. I don't need to analyze anything else. But I like that, Kim's point. The one way you hedge against that risk, I think, 
is that you can talk about the other things, but do it very, very briefly. I mean, I think you could say, like, there's a threshold massive problem here. There is no mutuality. Now, if we somehow could get over that crippling and fatal problem, <laughs> it appears that three of the four other elements are very straightforwardly satisfied here. The fourth would be difficult. But again, for the reasons I've stated before, there is no mutuality. So that, one way to hedge your bets against the I'm pretty sure, but what if I'm not? But I certainly agree. On, I would never, on a four-factor test, literally not talk about the three of the other four under any circumstances. <laughs> That's a bad mistake. Don't do that. Um, it's my first exam in law school. First question on the first exam. My first exam in law so school sure. is also torts. I also had torts for my first law school exam. Um, there was very little torts on my torts exam. Um, Say that into the camera. No, okay. He's, the, the person I had from torts is not here anymore. So, so I, we should probably, so I was going to just do yeah. sort of the getting your grade and how to react, and yep. then we should probably take questions. Absolutely. So I, you know, as I said, I have all the blue books they would give me back from, from my law school experience. I really believe in following up on your exams. Like, look, professors are different about how they do things. Some people will meet with you. Some people will only meet with certain people in the class, you know, depending on how you did. Some people will have a sample answer. Whatever it is, whatever they give you, take advantage of it. Right? I was never happier than having you know, somebody who'd written all over my exam. So I knew the things that the professor liked, the things the professor didn't like. If they gave back the checklist they used, that was super helpful to see what I was getting credit for and not getting credit for. Uh, anything you can do where you say, what did, how am I approaching exams? What am I doing correct or, or incorrect? So I'm not sure I actually knew how badly I, so I did well over, let's just be clear, I did well overall in torts. I only whiffed on question one. Um, but I actually have the scores of all six questions. So I know which questions I did well on, I know which questions I did poorly on, and the only reason I sort of learned the lesson of, you know, don't make your tree a stump, make it, you know, have lots of branches and uh, leaves and everything, uh, is to have looked back at that question. So really try to learn from uh, your professors and whatever they give you after your exams. Don't be like, oh, you know, I got a B plus, that's fine, you know, I'm moving on. You know, decide, you know, for any, whatever grade it is, however good or bad it is, figure out how do I do better, how do, am I constantly improving, what should I have done differently on this exam? Totally agree. Um, and I think the way you're gonna get the most out of that is, is really twofold. I mean partly because it's a tying ourselves to the mast, we really can't change your grade. So don't view this as a conversation trying to change your grade because your grade is not going to change. Literally no matter what happens during this conversation. And I think that's actually liberating and helpful because, because I think that's the wrong mindset to even approach this. I think the mindset to approach this is how can I do better on the future ones? How can I perform uh, wherever you want to perform in what direction that you want to go? I think the other thing to be cognizant of, look, um, giving people Constructive feedback is not fun for a lot of people. Uh, it's also not fun to hear. I mean, as a person who has both given and received constructive feedback, I know that it's not super fun uh, for either person. Um, but I think the thing I said on the front end about the mindset is to useful to think about, Ken Abraham said this about uh, getting comments from people on your articles. People almost always underhear the criticisms and overhear the praise. <laughs> Um, because the person giving you the feedback, look, especially in many ways, I mean, I'm actually way more comfortable telling people who got A's in my class all the things they screwed up on the exam. 
Um, because at the end of the day, they're going to walk out of my office having still gotten an A on the exam. Telling people that they mess things up is not super fun. Uh, it's really not fun if the person is defensive. It's really not fun. And it's easy to be. I mean, I don't mean to criticize any, but it's easy to be. But I think one real danger is to underhear the constructive criticism part of the feedback, um, or to minimize it, or to make it less than it is. And I think partly because the person who's giving the feedback will often be inclined to kind of soft sell those things. So I think as, as difficult and as unfun as it is, um, you want to really, really pay attention when you get the part that says, I'm not sure that this part was as successful as it might have been, <laughs> which may be a euphemism for something like, that was a gigantic mess. And we should probably not do that again. Um, because if you want to get the benefit, you need to hear. You're not going to be able to benefit from the feedback if you don't really hear the feedback that's being given. Um, I think is an important thing there. All right. So should we take questions? Yes. You're looking at me. You want me to go first? I so, either way. Um, <clears throat> I think that what you should see about what the professors do. So I, I, I don't teach con law, but I taught crim, as you know. And uh, I'm a retributivist, and anybody who was sitting in my class knows I'm a retributivist. Uh, so then the question is, what does that have to do with what you're learning? And part of that is that we're trying to impart policy arguments uh, on you, sort of themes, ways to think about stuff, what how you should approach these questions. So uh, you can't become a law professor if you think that everything courts do all the time is perfect, right? And it can't be true that that's correct. So to think about what are the kind of tools that this professor is giving me to attack precedent in different areas. Because you could get a question on the exam that says something like, what, how should this case come out? Or if you were you know, the next you know, justice on the Supreme Court, how would you rule on something like this? And you want to think about what the professor's giving you as not just sort of blind ideology, but a toolkit of arguments that can be used by one side or the other and can be deployed, particularly when you reach gray area on a case that isn't quite you know, on all fours with the case you've learned. Yeah, so I think the, that's a great question. The first thing I would start with is this is an area where it's vitally important to read and understand the question you're being asked. Um, am I being asked as a lawyer to predict what I think a court would do with this case? Well, then I care what they've said, right? I care what the courts have said. If I'm asked if I'm a lower court judge, how would I decide this case? Then that's a different question. Um, am I asked what I think? And I agree, I mean, so that's, that's the question. So I think the first mistake that people can often make is not distinguishing between those questions because I think those are very, very different questions. Um, the second thing I guess I would say is, I, you know, that's tough. Uh, so you say you get the second type of question. What should you, do, what would you do? So the danger, of course, is that the thing about people who are smart and have spent a lot of time thinking about an issue and have reached the conclusion that the only right thinking answer is X um, are really good at doing is ripping apart the arguments for not X. Because presumably, 
they think acts for a reason, and that's that they've examined the arguments for not acts, and they have found those arguments wanting, right? Because otherwise, they wouldn't think acts. At least one hopes. Um, <laughs> so if you're going to argue not acts, you should consider the fact that a person who's reading this exam is very good at identifying the problems with not X. Um, at the same time, they've also probably heard most of the criticisms of X, too. So if you're going to argue X, which on the belief that that's what they want to hear, they're also probably really good at identifying the weaknesses of the argument for X. And if you just assert X as if X is self-evidently true and there are no possible arguments against X, they will also notice instantaneously that you've actually left out the three most significant objections to X. I tend to be, so okay, what do you actually do? Um, on those specific kinds of questions, because I, again, I want to make clear, I think the threshold mistake people often make is they confuse question one for question two, and those are different questions. But if you get asked question two, I mean, I would be reluctant probably on an, ex this is purely as a matter of the object of law school exams is to earn high grades. It's the only objective <laughs> of law school exams. Um, I would be dispositionally reluctant to try to convince someone in a two-page essay that their strongly held views about topic X are fundamentally wrong. <laughs> that does not immediately strike me as a, as a positive net value proposition for you to try to take on. Um, and so I would probably be disposed to at least present my own reaction more favorably to I would tend to err, in describing what I honestly think, I would err on the side of not violently disagreeing over violently disagreeing. Um, but then I would also make sure that I don't not address the obvious counterarguments to what I'm saying, because I don't think, I do not think it's because you should misleadingly assume that any argument in favor of what you think they think is going to be uncritically accepted, because I actually think, I mean, the problem is everyone likes to be flattered, but no one likes to be obviously flattered. Um, and so the goal with much of life is to figure out how to flatter without obviously flattering um, is my, I mean, that's, that, I mean, again, I'm, this is not what you should do in your life. This, would you, this is what you should do when another human being has a great deal of power over you, over something that matters a lot to you. Um, Kim yeah. is distressed. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm a very utilitarian person when it comes to law school exams. Well, I guess, <laughs> so I would say that I tried to internalize what, as a law student, you try to internalize what you think about things, right? This is part of the act of learning, right? Mm -hmm. Is that as class is going on, you're either agreeing or disagreeing with the professor, hopefully for good reason as to, as to those themes, so that by the time you hit the exam, you're not just sort of spitballing why the professor might be wrong about something, but are gonna have good arguments for it. I mean, I have, I have tried a number of times to do, so last year I had an exam where I gave four different formulations of provocation. And I said, you have to pick one for the new state of Ferzania. And the one that I really liked the most was this thing that had come out of a law review article that they'd never seen. And no one even picked that, right? They either picked the model penal code or they picked something that looked like the model penal code or something that looked like the common law. And then they sort of reached for what were the things we learned in class? What are the policy arguments for it? And they got credit whether they gave you know arguments that I thought were compelling or I was less uh, sympathetic to as long as they were sort of good, reasonably well thought out arguments that people make. And so I, I guess I wouldn't go in with, I think it's a huge mistake to go as far as like, 
for Zan's a retributivist, everything I write should be pro-retributivism, right? Or this person's a conservative, I better write a whole bunch of stuff, you know, pro-originalism on their exam, right? That, I think that would be the sort of step too far in kind of gaming this as opposed to thinking about it as an intellectual exercise where you're really trying to sort of gain knowledge and depth. So maybe it's too Pollyanna an answer, but I believe it. Um, other questions? I know we have to end soon. Yes. <laughs> well, but you do, so, so part of the small section is to give you guys practice with a midterm um, that you actually get graded, that you get graded or feedback on. And I, so for example, as you know, because you were in my crim class, we, I passed out a crim exam and then we wrote it literally in class, sentence by sentence, how you would approach that. So it is true that you only get one sort of final uh, exam, but I think that there are a number of faculty who are pretty sympathetic to trying to give you guys other bites at the apple uh, but, and not just But no, that. It's, a, it's a completely fair point. Uh, it's a difficult yeah. question, and yes. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, for, for those of you here in, the, in the here and now, I mean, there's an interesting question about whether there's a better system. Of course, the answer to that question is always, Always yes. There's always a better system, um, but unfortunately, you know, for those of you in the here and now, your objective is to do as well as you can within the system that you find yourself. But no, I think it's a it's a completely fair point, 100 percent. Yes. No docs at all. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I, I actually, first and foremost, my advice is that it's not fundamentally different at all. Um, is that it fundamentally is exactly the same task as studying for a completely open book exam. Because I actually think, I mean, I don't do it because, it's weird, I'm actually super comfortable with paternalism. So I don't know why I don't ban out lines longer than it. Because I'm super comfortable with paternalism. Um, but I don't think it's fundamentally different because I don't think much more than one or two pages is something you should ever be looking at in an exam anyway. And so this is just going one slight step farther and not letting you look at anything at all. I think the single biggest thing I would say for me would be the difference is that that puts an even higher premium on really thinking through the checklist so that the checklist comes to you intuitively even without one piece of paper. I actually think the only really concrete difference I would suggest then is I think you need to memorize your checklist. Um, because I think that in some ways the most important thing you walk into the exam with is I will start here. I, so take, I'll just take con law for example. Um, the first question I have to know when analyzing anything on a con law, at least for me, the first thing I have to know is this is, is this the federal government or a state government? Because the moment this is the federal government, I have to worry about federalism. And the moment it's a state government, I don't. So the very first question on my mental checklist for a common law exam is, is the action being challenged an action of the federal government or a state government? Um, I think the next question, and then I just I flow. But if it's a federal issue, I then have to ask, is it the executive? Is it the legislature? Is it the judiciary? Because there are Article I limitations on what Congress. So I think one of the incredibly easy things to do on con law is to go, ooh, 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 due process issue, ooh, ooh, ooh equal protection issue, um, and forget that there might be a threshold federalism or separation of powers issue. Um, and so 
I think that the single biggest impetus for the closed book exam is to spend even more time essentially creating and memorizing a checklist of things to think about on the exam so that when your panicky brain is inclined to forget something, you can say, hold on, ask question one, ask question two, ask question three. So, so I think I remember having closed book exams in law school, and it really does sort of psych you out, and you think it's going to be so different. And really, you should be thinking, this isn't any different than how I want to walk into any exam knowing my outline cold. I will say I would probably use mnemonics to anything that you would need. So continuous, open, adverse, claim of right, and hostile. Learned that for the bar. Coach, still know it to this day. I took the bar in 1996. So... Um, Wait, am I, did I get it wrong? I didn't get it wrong, unless they, unless you've learned something different. For adverse possession, there's chatting going. They liked it. They liked it. It was it. good. No, no. So I mean, I, you know, to the extent that you're worried about a test that has multi-factors, anytime you hit um, a fine, and you're worried, oh, I'm going to forget factor four. You know, the occasional mnemonic, you know, that you learned, that you did in high school is probably not a bad thing. For the bar, you're going to have to do a closed book exam and you're going to have to learn a lot of things. And this, you should see as a good practice for, you know, memorization of a lot of material and getting your mind used to that. Maybe have time for one more. Are there any more questions? Okay. All right. Thanks all. Thank you.